This is Mastering College to Career, and you are listening to How to Get an H-1B Job International STEM Student Edition, a podcast for international students and graduates looking for unique insights and strategies from industry thought leaders. Welcome, welcome, welcome to today's uh, workshop. Um, also, this will be an episode of the, of the How to Land Your Dream Job uh, podcast, and today I have an amazing Yes, I have a really good friend of mine that we build a really good relationship. And this is Robert, the H-1B guy. He is an expert when it comes to kind of immigration law, when it comes to getting your H-1B, both helping companies hire, sponsor job candidates to get their H-1B and just talking about this. But without further ado, Robert, welcome to the, the call, man. How are you? Hey, Daniel. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Robert Bouchard. Um, Daniel and I go way back, back to when he was actually doing some staffing recruiting. Um, we connected on LinkedIn and we had kept up over the years and Daniel posted um, something on LinkedIn. Gosh, it's probably over a year ago now, Daniel, talking about being an entrepreneur and working for yourself. And it like really resonated with me. And uh, I reached out to Daniel and Honestly, we just kind of picked back up where we left off, I think back from 2016. Um, we have some commonalities in terms of the demographics that we operate in. For those of you who aren't familiar with me, um, I own and operate the h1bguy.com and the h1bguy YouTube channel. I also have a podcast, the h1bguy podcast. Um, Daniel has been on my channel and this is my second time now on the podcast. So I'm super excited to be back and uh, looking forward to uh, um, our interaction here tonight. Love it. So uh, what we'll do is I have a couple of questions for you in the beginning, kind of just talking about the whole overall process of, you know, going from your F1 to your H1B. But then what we could do is just open it up for some general Q&A. I know that you love doing that you, and you have a Q&A that you do on a weekly basis too. So if you enjoy this, want to make sure that you guys uh, subscribe to, to Robert's channel. And if he's just a great connection to make sure that you are informed when it comes to the ever-changing landscape of immigration in the U.S. So uh, Robert, why don't you kind of maybe just walk us through uh, the kind of the typical journey that you see uh, you know, Im international students, uh, as they go from living abroad, coming to the U.S. as an F1, and then going from OPT to F uh, to the H1, H1B. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Before I do so, Daniel, I want to ask everyone here a question, um, and you can post this in the chat if you want, um, but does anyone know what happened yesterday at noon EST? If you throw that in the chat, I'd love to see. Does anyone know what what happened yesterday at noon EST, March 1st? Anybody? You got it. You nailed it, Daniel. Yesterday was day one for the H-1B lottery for fiscal year 2023. This is the third year now that USCIS has utilized an electronic portal and random selection. And so the Trump administration um, back at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, uh, made the announcement they were gonna be moving to an electronic uh, portal with random selection. So what that means is that for employers, there is a $10 non-refundable fee and they can sponsor as many individuals, put them in the portal as they want, as long as they have a job for them, right? Um, for individuals, you have the option of having as many employers who are willing to pay that $10 non-refundable fee to submit your name into that portal. And so what happened in the, uh, the 2020 lottery, so for fiscal year 2021, there were 275,000 applications received for 85,000 spots, 65,000 for individuals with a bachelor's degree or a foreign national uh, degree, and 20,000 for an advanced U.S. degree. So 275,000 applications, 85,000 slots, a little over a 30% probability. Last year, heading into the lottery for, for fiscal year 2022, which actually took place starting on March 9th of last year, um, 
I was expecting the numbers to be even lower than they were the previous year, but I was completely wrong. Last year, USCIS received 308,000 submissions in the electronic portal for 85,000 spots. That lowered the probability down to about 27%, a little bit above that. This year, I'm anticipating that number to be even higher. Um, I went on the record um, just yesterday stating that I expect that number to be somewhere around 310,000 names submitted into the electronic portal by U.S. employers. So that means probability of being selected going to be roughly, again, around 27% or one in roughly maybe four, okay? So what does that mean? That means that the value of the H-1B visa via the lottery has never been higher. It's harder to get, but it's also easier for individuals to have multiple employers put your name into that portal, okay? But the breaking point that happens is that if more than one employer um, is awarded an H-1B visa on your behalf, only one can actually submit a physical paper petition to USCIS on your behalf. So it's not like you can pick and choose. The first one that gets it in is the one that you're then obligated to. And so when we start to look at what that creates, what it created in 2021, it created an opportunity for there to be a second lottery held, which was unprecedented at the time. And towards the end of July, individuals were notified of a second selection. And then in uh, November of the following year, they then were able to apply again. And in February of 2021, the lottery for fiscal year 2021 actually closed. Fast forward to this past year, and we had three lotteries held unprecedented, the response rate for the first lottery. So that's individuals' names who were selected and employers that decided to apply the physical paper petition was 70%. So seven out of 10 names that were selected, employers actually submitted the physical paper petition. Fast forward to the end of July, a second lottery was held and that response rate was even lower, only 40% of employers responded to those individuals' names, which then led to a third lottery being held in November. USCIS notified individuals over this past weekend of non-selection, and then on Monday, they made it public that the lottery for fiscal year 2023, so last year, starting November of 2021, had officially closed. That gave others who were not selected less than 24 hours to get their name in starting tomorrow. Or, or okay. yesterday, excuse can me. We, can I can we dive deeper into this? And as, as yep. we as we have kind of some time, um, I want you to just I want to kind of just recap some of the things that you said. Just make sure that I'm understanding, and, and then we're all on the same page. Uh, in 2021 year, it was about 30 percent chance, right, mm -hmm. of, of doing it, and there was only one lottery. There um, was two actually held the the first year, two and. And uh, and then last time that was that happened was about three hundred eight thousand people applied, twenty seven percent chance, but seven out of the ten people that were selected, the co company didn't end up filing it. It, you know, and you said that every time they did the lottery again, less and less people actually filed it. Do you think that's because people were were, were leaving back to go to their country because they were like, hey, I'm not, I didn't get the lottery, I, I don't have a shot anymore kind of mm -hmm. deal or what do you what why do you think that's the case yeah so i think there's a few factors involved the first is a low barrier to entry right a ten dollar non-refundable fee from the employer to submit a name into the lottery means that i'm going to take a shot and if i don't get picked great if i do then i have to go behind after the fact i'm not saying that there's not a job that's there i'm just saying that the risk the barrier to entry is much lower i also believe that because of that individuals then are able to go to consultancies or third-party sub vendors that hire h1bs and have them put their name in so you're looking at duplicate submissions so I've heard of situations where an individual had their name put in by 20 or 25 different companies, okay? It's all about increasing your odds, right? The more your name is in the lottery, the more employers are actually putting your name in uniquely, it increases those odds. So a lot of, I'm not gonna say fraudulent, but 
lower barrier to entry creates less risk on the employer side. So let me, that's what I don't understand. It's like, so I don't, an employer, like a candidate, so anybody here doesn't have to be working for the company for the company to file it, their, put their that's, name. That's correct. They just need to say that as of October 1st of 2022, I have a full-time permanent position for this individual. Got it. Okay. And then if let's, so then this individual, very talented, is mm-hmm. able to get 20 companies to do this, mm-hmm. right? And, and generally speaking, I don't see a scenario where unless the person's like a genius, like that would, you have 20 people fighting for that person, but right. somebody coming right out of college, like, I don't know how that scenario would work unless you're working with a bunch of staffing agencies that are right. just putting everybody's name in. The and if any of you have been out on Instagram, you've seen these consultancies that post need H1B visa. We're looking to sponsor in data science, software engineers, um, machine learning, like those ads and those boutique third party middlemen, if you want to call them that, um, are out there. And they're aggressively marketing and looking for individuals who are seeking H-1B sponsorship. Why? The value is extremely high for them. There's an ownership involved. There's extreme opportunities for them to maximize revenue on individuals who are looking to be in a consultancy versus a direct perm employee. So there's two really kind of companies that do a fair amount of H-1B applications. You look at your Amazons, so your fangs out there, they're always gonna be in the top 10 in terms of new H-1B applications, new, initial, brand new. And then when you look at the consultancy side, your large Indian consultancies, all the way down to your boutiques who have less than 50 employees, they're willing to take that risk, that $10 risk to say, I'm only out $10 if this individual doesn't get selected. But if they do, now I have a commodity, right? An individual to which I can place at another work site. Yeah, but now if, for example, let's throw this scenario out there, right? Company A, is it decides to want to sponsor Mariana, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality is that I am owner of company A. I don't really have the opposition for Mariana, but then Mariana really wants to work at company B. Company B also files it, but mm-hmm. company A ends up getting it. I can't transfer that and say, hey, company B, here's Mariana. Nope. nope. Right. So what happens is, is company A would submit that full application. Once an approval was received, that individual then is tied to company A, Daniel. You're tied to company A, and you would have to work for a minimum period of time. I say the, the rule of 30. So at least 30 days would you need to work for the employer who was selected, applied, and approved. You need to work at least 30 days for them and be able to provide valid pay stubs that show that you were an employee of company A, before you could ever consider transferring that H-1B to another employer. And once you have your H-1B, you, and, I, and I don't even think 30 days is a lot, but like, but I, you know, after that, then you're free to go to any other employer. Free is a very loose term in the H-1B world. Do you have the option? Yes, but there is always inherent risk anytime you want to change employers from an H-1B transfer perspective because it requires an entirely new H-1B to be submitted. So it's called an H-1B change of employer. In our world, it's generally referred to as an H-1B transfer, but it's an entirely new application that's submitted on behalf of the employer for the individual. Petitioner is the term used for employers. Beneficiary is the term that's used for employees. But at this point, you don't have to go through the lottery again. You've kind of already been approved. So now it's Correct. just the paperwork. The biggest thing, though, is once that visa is approved, Daniel, and you begin working, you have to begin working for that employer. And you have to be able to provide a va- valid pay stubs that show that you were an employee of company A and that they paid you at or above the prevailing wage that's been determined on that H-1B visa. Pay stubs are part of the overall evidence when you look at H-1B change of employers, H-1B extensions, H-1B amendments. 
Yeah. Makes okay, makes sense. So that's I would come back more towards what most of the people in this room are in, right? So they're right now in F1, they're students for graduate. They're and, and and if I just wanna if you guys can chat type in the chat, how many of you are current international STEM students? If you are put it yes, if you're not put it no. I think other than other than one person, I think everybody fits into that mold. Two people, um, three people. If you're not kind of your situation, okay. So here's what I'm gonna kind of say the most common scenario. Then if 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 you said no here and you have further questions, please. I want we're gonna open it up for Q and A for at least the last thirty minutes. I'm an international STEM student, right? I have one year of OPT with a two year extension, which is three years to be eligible for the lottery, right? Um, I graduate this May, Robert, mm -hmm. right? I graduate this May. I am going to file for my OPT, mm -hmm. right? I think we were talking about this even before, right? Yep. So the I 60, have to, 90 window that we were talking yep. about, right? Yeah. So I have to file 60 days before I graduate or within 90 days after graduating to get my OPT card, mm -hmm. right? My eligibility to work. From that point, once I have the physical card, and I just want to make sure I'm on the same page. Once I have the physical card, I then have a 90 days to get a some sort of job, right? Some sort of job, whether it's an internship, a co-op, a contract, or or preferably a full-time job. But mm -hmm. the goal is to be with a company as a full-time person working under my OPT card that's then willing to put my name in the lottery the mm -hmm. upcoming year in March. Yep. Right? And you want as many shots as you can get at it. How would I get more than one shot if I already got an offer from, let's say, Amazon? Okay. So you get an offer from Amazon. Let's say you start working in July. Perfect. Yes. Okay. So at that point, Amazon being a well-oiled machine, they completely understand OPTs and OPT stems. Okay. Um, they're going to tee it up and they're going to put you in the lottery in March. Yep. They just are. It's what they're going to do, especially if you're in a STEM skill set that's in high demand for them. That's what Amazon is going to do. They they have the internal legal counsel to do that. OK, now let's say that you go into that lottery in March and for that year, you are not selected. You continue to be an Amazon employee throughout the remainder of that year. And now we're into the next year. Right. So you've applied for your OPT STEM extension and you were given an additional 24 months. OK, you're still an employee of Amazon. They're going to take another shot on you the following March. OK, mm -hmm. and let's say that cycle continues itself. Now we're into year three. OK, year three. So three years removed from July, you still haven't been selected. You're still an employee of Amazon. You're still doing a great job. They love you. They'll put you in the lottery again a third time, okay? Let's say at that point, you are selected, but your EAD OPT expires. The EAD OPT stem expires in July, all right? If you are selected, what happens then is you're considered a cap gap, okay? So if you're selected in the lottery, before your expiration, but your expiration is before October 1st, you're considered a cap gap case. So you would maintain your EAD OPT STEM work authorization until you automatically change statuses upon your H-1B approval beginning October 1st. Got Does that it. make sense, Daniel? Yeah. So essentially is I have three shots. And even if my, my OPT expires July, three years from graduation. I'm yep. still able to work until October 1st. Correct. Because I've already. What, one thing that you mentioned was the last couple of years in March, they open up the lottery. And then by the end of March, they kind of already let you know the first wave. And you said there's a couple of waves. Now, yep. do we have any statistics of saying, hey, there was a 27, 27% on the first wave, right? Mm -hmm. But when you add the last two waves, that number must dramatically increase because not everybody- It actually doesn't. Is... And here's why. They're not taking, they're not opening the portal back up. They're only drawing from those that are in the pool, okay? 
So they only take it from, for example, last year, they were only taking it from the 308 that were received during the window. Okay. So this year, the window is March 1st through March 18th. So if you're someone out there that says, I'm, I'm working for an employer and I'm looking to get my name in the lottery, you have until March 18th to make that happen. Okay. Otherwise, you're looking at next year, no matter how many random selections are held for this particular fiscal year. Right. But th- doesn't that number, like, h- how, how does that 27% calculate? Because, like, I was writing some of those numbers, right? So for, mm-hmm. follow me for a second. You said 308,000 people were submitted, right? Employers paid $10 non-refundable, which is nothing for a company. That's like equivalent to us putting a penny, right? Yeah. Um, It's just something to like have a little bit of skin in the game, right? And then there were, you said that there was, and there's only 80,000 spots, right? Yeah, 85. So what I'm talking about there is the initial probability, right? If you're one of 310,000 amongst the initial 85, 27%. Those odds actually reduce through the subsequent lotteries and the second and third lotteries. Reason being is that you have individuals who have already applied and been approved. So those numbers are already allocated for. They're not issuing out another 85,000. They're just issuing whatever is remaining that hasn't been fulfilled. Right. But I guess the way I look at it, maybe I'm, I'm thinking about this differently is since like the first round, only 90, 90% of people accept it, right? Is that 70% that actually okay. responded. So out of 85 people that 85,000 people that got it, mm-hmm. 70% accepted. Correct. Or right. responded via responded, an application. Re- responded. Yeah. So that means that if I even do the, like a math, it left like, what is that? 85,000. It left 25,000 more open spots, right? right. So the, per- the percentage will go higher, even though a num is 25,000 spots for 200 and something thousand availability. Correct. So your odds go down. I don't know. If somebody is a mathematician here in this room, I, anyways, I, I think what I'm trying to try to figure out is what are the actual odds mm-hmm. if you're in the lottery one year? So let's say one year is 27%. And obviously it depends on the number of applicants. Mm-hmm. What 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 does that look like if you're in it there for two years? And mm-hmm. what does that look like if you're in it for three years? Yeah, to me, I, I would say the odds maintain kind of the same percentages, but it really is dependent upon the number of total applications that are put into the electronic portal so that number could vary i don't think your odds increase year over year i think your odds reset it's kind of a reset and then last thing i i've been out when i was doing some research and i'm definitely not as good as you on this type of research but i was seeing that that you know without going so much into the politics side is both both parties see that there's a value of keeping like, you know, international STEM students in America, right? Like mm-hmm. they're getting trained in our, in the universities, they're going to get high paying jobs. They're going to have, they're going to pay taxes on that. Why not keep them? Do you mm-hmm. see in the foreseeable future that making it easier for uh, a path to residency or even increasing the number from 85 to 200 mm-hmm. or 300? Yeah, that's a great question, Daniel. Um, Something that I've talked about a good bit. And so I'll I'll, I'll speculate on a couple of things. Um, If any immigration reform is going to happen in the U.S., it will happen before the end of the year. Otherwise, you're looking at a midterm election and things are going to change drastically from a landscape perspective here in the U.S. Um, And I think when you start to look at immigration as a whole, what does that mean? I think that smaller standalone bills have a high probability. Um, there are a couple out there. One which has been sort of fully vetted and was recently passed in the House is one called America's Competes Act. Mm-hmm. America's Competes Act actually has um, a, a path to permanent residency for STEM PhD language included in it. Now, I know that may not be exactly the audience that we're talking about here, but that does show some of the softening of American educated international students and granting them a a path, 
right? A path to work authorization, a path to permanent residency. Um, I also have speculated numerous times that if there were to be reform to the overall allocation of H-1B visas that are issued annually via the lottery, uh, that I think we would see an increase in advanced, the advanced U.S. master's degree category. And, and I don't know if they would reduce the foreign national category as a whole, but I think we may see like some sort of equality to it. So if there's 65,000 available for uh, a bachelor, foreign national bachelors, I believe that we may see up to 65,000 available. So an increase of roughly 45,000 in that advanced U.S. category. The other thing that I want to point out that is it's a harsh reality, but I've, I've seen data out there that says anywhere between 10 to 20,000 international students that come to the U.S. and obtain a master's degree end up losing work authorization and have to deport. It's a pretty staggering number. And when we look at the workforce here in the U.S. and what the curve looks like as we head projecting out to 2023, individuals that are here on this call, Daniel, that have roughly, you know, in their mid early 20s, maybe have a couple of years of experience. That is the demographic that most US employers are looking to hire, specifically in STEM. Why? Because they can get 10 to 15 years out of you. That's why. Yeah. Um, when, when, so it's 65, and that's for the bachelor, right? Yep. Where does the countries where your country where your country where you come from matter is that on the 65 or is that in a different it doesn't matter okay it, it there there really is no uh quota or cap on country of origin for h1b visas that, that's however, more when you're applying for residency correct however 80 percent of H-1B visas issued annually are generally to individuals that were born in India. 10% or a little higher than that, roughly, are from individuals from China. So if you are from any other country other than India or China, you're in a 10% demographic of the overall H-1B visas that are issued annually. But that's just more than anything because of the quantity of international students from international STEM students from India, which are 150,000 that are here a year. So you look at those numbers, right? India and China dominate international STEM students here in the U.S. Yeah. They just do. Yeah. And medical, too, if, you know, um, medical as well as most Ph.D. candidates outside of STEM, um, you'll see that there are a few other countries that are part of that. Uh, South Korea is another one that you'll see a good bit. Um, Brazil is another one, but for the most part, uh, you know, India and China dominate that landscape. Um, there's a question in the chat, Robert, about what when it comes to business uh, admin students. So that's a non-STEM major, uh, which yeah. means that they have a one-year OPT. It just means that you only have one shot and you're only going after the 65,000 versus all 85,000, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's a great question. I get asked this a lot. Like if I am a, if I have an MBA or a BBA, right? What, what specialty occupation category do I, do I qualify for? And that's a very tricky one, but business development actually does have its own H-1B category and can be considered a specialty occupation. So it's really a matter of what kind of business development are you doing and how specialized it is. I don't know the exact um, SIC code off the top of my head for that job occupation category, but I can do a little research um, uh, on, on the question's behalf and, and get back to you if, if they're interested in that. But great point, Daniel, and that's what I was going to, I wanted to make a point for individuals who are uh, non-STEM, who are here attending um, the session tonight, uh, to let you know that we calculated the three, we were talking about three attempts in the H-1B lottery. You have one. And so that's where it gets to be very restrictive for you. And you need to go in and approach any employer who you, you're talking to. If I'm a non-STEM OPT EAD, I am upfront letting them know that I need sponsorship. 
And if you don't do that, you're doing them and yourself a disservice because you're going to get very close to lottery time and your employer's either not going to be willing to sponsor you or not going to know how to do it. And then time is going to be against you. So my best advice, and we talked about this the last time I was on the podcast, Daniel, my best advice to anyone before you accept an offer with an employer, they need to understand what your work authorization status is and what your expectations are based on your performance going forward. Meaning if you're performing at a high level, your evaluations and reviews are good, you are going to need sponsorship in order to maintain work authorization here in the U.S., so that leads to the next question, Daniel, which is, what are my options if I'm not selected? Okay. And this is another harsh reality that we talk about a lot on um, the H1B Guy platform. And that is this, your options become pretty limited. Your options are, you can go the CPT route, curriculum, practical training. You can work part-time or full-time. But what does that mean to you? It means more money for tuition. It just does but it does allow you to maintain uh, work authorization. And you can also be sponsored in the H-1B lottery as a CPT employee, okay? Outside of that, outside of all of that, if you realize that no longer am I going to have work authorization here in the US, what are my options? I don't wanna go back to my home country, okay? If you're STEM, your options are actually you have more options than non-STEM. It's just unfortunate part of the degrees and the way they separate the categories. But that's where we start to look at countries that have a merit-based system. So like a Canada or a UK or an Australia, all right? I, I don't want to get into all of that, but I just want to let you know that your options, once you do hit your maximum stay, and if you're non-STEM and only have 12 months, CPT really becomes a harsh reality for you, which is I'm going to have to pay more money, be back in school looking at another degree in order to have work authorization. Yeah. And when you were talking about this, is a CPT? Yeah, CPT, Curriculum Practical Training. So that's essentially saying I got to go back to school and it has to be an act to get another degree. And so I could still work 20, max 20 hours, right? Which is the max 20 hours. You can uh, actually work full-time if you're part-time. They're, they're, but what you do forego, since you've already maximized all of your OPT time, you are no longer eligible for OPT. So CPTs can go to, to OPT as long as they work part-time. So if, you're, if you work no more than 20 hours a week, you actually have OPT eligibility. But once you've expired your OPT eligibility, you can go to CPT working full-time until you graduate. What you, you were mentioning something about like, if you're on CPT, you could enter the lottery every year. Yep, you can, absolutely. Even after your three years? Mm-hmm, yep. As long, as long as you're on in CPT status, you, that means you have a designated school official, a DSO, who's signing off on the fact that you're enrolled in classes and that you have work authorization based on the degree that you're, you're enrolled in, and you can continue to work and then also be sponsored while you're doing that. Sponsored meaning H-1B sponsorship via the lottery. Awesome. Um, I can keep asking questions, but I would like to open it up. So if you do have questions, you can either type them in the chat or, um, or as well as just kind of mute yourself. We have a question in, in the chat, uh, Robert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's asking about EB2. EB2 is Employment-Based Preference 2. So that is actually green card status that he's referring to. And his question says, can an employer file for EB2 since the EB2 has no lottery unless wait times for certain individuals from certain countries except India and China? Great question. Um, and that answer is actually yes. An employer can submit um, employment-based green card sponsorship or what we call perm labor certification for any individual. But what they have to do is they have to go through, a, there's a process, pretty lengthy process right now. It's anywhere between 12 to 18 months for that to take place. But if you're from any other country other than India or China, this is absolutely an option that I am considering and I'm talking to my employer about. 
So let's say that you're from Brazil. I'm just going to use Brazil as an example here, Daniel. And I am working for an employer and they know that I am on an OPT non-STEM and they want to do a green card, employment-based green card sponsorship for me. Okay. Um, that is actually a great option for individuals from Brazil because they can work for 12 months. They have this perm labor certification going on. All right. Employer sponsors them. Let's say it takes 18 months. There may be a small gap of time where they do have to leave the U.S. But once they're perm labor certified and their adjustment of status is filed because they're from Brazil, their dates are current. They then once they would have approval through consular processing being outside the U.S., they then would be able to enter back into the U.S. under green card status. Do we know so why ex like, there's exceptions for India and China? Is that just because the vast majority of international students come from those two? Nope. Great question. So in the INA, there was actually, there's 140,000 employment-based green cards that are allotted annually. And that is for every country in the world, okay? There is a 7% cap that is put on each individual country out of that 140,000. And so when you have 115,000 international students coming into the country from India and 80% of the H-1Bs issued annually are from India, not every Indian can receive a green card based on employment-based uh, green card sponsorship based on that 7% country cap. And what that has created, and it's something I talk about a lot on my channel, this is right here, the 7% cap on country quota for the 140,000 employment-based green cards that are issued annually. This is the root cause of the green card backlog. So if you ever hear that term green card backlog, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the root cause of individuals having to wait more than 3,800 days for their date to come current. By my math, Daniel, that's 10 years that individuals wait in a backlog for a green card if you're from India. Wow. Because that's why got it. Any more questions from the group? Robert, um what what is that thing like I had kind of if you work for a nonprofit research institution, mm -hmm. is that some sort of kind of like a way that you don't they don't you can work for more than 3 years? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so if I work for a nonprofit or research institute that's nonprofit, okay, and let's say I'm working for them under my EAD OPT, non-STEM, okay, I'm just gonna say non-STEM here because this is a great point for non-STEMers out there. If you're working for a nonprofit, they actually are what's called cap exempt. Okay, so nonprofits can submit at any point in the year a request for an H-1B visa under the cap exempt designation. So that means that H-1B isn't counted against the annual lottery that we've been talking about. The big but, though, is that but that cap exempt H-1B, it can be transferable but only to other cap-exempt nonprofit institutions. It cannot be transferred to employers who are for-profit and are in non-exempt status. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I've, we, I talked a lot about with some of my mentees is like when they're kind of running out of options, how there's some huge nonprofit like in Orlando, Florida, for example, Advent Health or even Florida, they yeah. have about like 15 hospitals. They hire every type of role from the doctors and nurses mm -hmm. to com computer science, engineers, right? Like mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And that is a great option because there's no cap. Like they can get their H-1B without going through the lottery. It allows them to get paid well because they're essentially working for a, an organization. Right. Yeah, it's a great option. And, and it comes down to, are they also willing to do the, the green card sponsorship as well, yeah. right? And how secure and stable are they? Medical institutions, Advent Health, for example, they're not going anywhere, yeah. right? 
their their stability, their ability to pay, their their continued growth that they're going to see year over year um, gives them a lot of flexibility as it relates to having a cap exempt H-1B and potentially even going down the, the green card sponsorship pathway with them. Um, there's a question in here that, that says, if your H-1B is approved for a certain job role in a company, do you have to work in exactly that job role or can you do any other job position in the same country? So this is one of those gray areas, okay? And I wanna warn you that you wanna be working as closely to the job that your H-1B has been approved for as possible, okay? You wanna make sure that you're being paid at or above the prevailing wages listed on your LCA, LCA meaning labor condition application. And what that means is it basically takes your, the MSA that your job sits in, physically sits in, MSA meaning metropolitan statistical area, and it does a wage-based evaluation on other individuals in a same or similar role, and it calculates what the average wage is for those individuals based on their experience, and you have to be paid at or above. So this is a little bit of a gray area, but my best advice to you is you want to be as in line with the role that was put out there as possible. Okay. Awesome. We have another one. Can anyone without a master's degree or PhD degree work as a data scientist, software engineer, et cetera, for top companies such as FANG and file for EB2 natural, uh, national in uh, interest waiver? Um that's a tough one, EB2 and IW. There's a lot that goes into that. Is it possible? Absolutely, but FANG is not filing EB2 and IWs. They just aren't doing it. Facebook, Amazon, um, Netflix, Google, they're, they're Apple, they're not, they're not filing EB2 and IWs. They're, they're just not. They're, they're filing EB2s, um, maybe even some EB3s, and depending on managerial level, possibly an EB1 but I've not seen any FANGs do EB2 and IWs that I'm aware of. Generally, that's more for, um, I, again, depending on the, the role, I've, I've seen that in, in the medical and in, in chemistry fields, but not even for like PhDs or um, infectious disease doctors, they even have difficulty qualifying for this EB2 and IW. Um, so it's a great option. And I'm glad you're asking about it because it tells me you're looking into it. Um, but two of the most popular questions I get asked as it relates to green card um, sponsorship are about EB1C and EB2 and IW. Um, those are very common questions that I receive. Why? Because those generally allow exceptions and get you to the front of the line faster. Can you just quickly explain for the ones for like I barely I don't know what an EB2 and IW is. Yep. So EB2 is employment based preference two. So there are five employment-based preferences that are listed. Uh, there's an EB1, so employment-based one. And in EB1, there's EB1A, EB1B, and EB1C, okay? Uh, extraordinary ability, uh, research, as well as managerial. That's EB1A, B, and C. EB2 is for the advanced category, specialty occupation, uh, and that is really kind of the preferred category that you want to be in. And this category requires a minimum of a bachelor's degree and five years of documented experience or a master's degree and three years of documented experience. Okay. The NIW though is for national interest waiver, meaning that they don't fall under the, 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 the annual allotment. They're not counted against the overall 140,000 that we were talking about. Got it. Um, and then there's also EB3, EB4, and EB5. There's some question about OPT and does it need to be paid employment? Can you, can you work as a research assistant in your university and on an OPT? Yeah, we were talking about this earlier. Um, mm -hmm. It can, as long as you're employed, it can be considered an internship or un unpaid internship, even though you have um, your OPT EAD, you actually can work as a research assistant on OPT. But it has to be related towards the degree you got. Correct. Right? That's the biggest thing here, Daniel. Great point. It's got to be in line with the degree. 
So let's say you're, you're getting a master's in chemistry. You have to be a research assistant helping teach chemistry classes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Another one. Yep. If I'm doing a master's in construction management, if I go for a PhD program and file for EB2 and IW around how many research citations uh, should I have to get accepted? I believe it's three to five. Um, there are a lot of H1Bs that do work in construction management. Um, so I think that that's a great option for you to pursue. Um, I like that. I like your probabilities. Uh, I, I think that, that there, are, there are good odds for you um, in that path. And if you have the capabilities and the means and the patience to go through the PhD program, I would advise you to absolutely do that. Um, before we move on to the last question about uh, competitive in Canada, um, question on like getting sponsorship through being like, you know, either like a genius or having, what is that? Like, what are some of those criteria that you need to meet? Like is it published papers? Is yeah. it, what are what are some other things that that they they're looking for? Yeah, so that's the 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 EB one B, okay, EB one B. What's considered the research um, are uh, considered expert in their particular field. There are uh, awards that are associated with that, publications that are involved, research papers and citations, references, and that their institute that they're actually working for employs other individuals in a same or similar capacity got it okay and then we have a question about the options of canada do i think here is more competitive than finding sponsorship in let's say canada well that's a great question and the reason why i say that is um uh, another partner that I have on the H1B Guy platform is, is with a, a organizations called Syndesis and Path to Canada. They do two different things, but they do, they relocate U.S. jobs to Canada, but they also utilize the global talent stream, which is GTS, and that's Canada's version of an H1B visa. But do I think it's more competitive here versus there? Absolutely. Everyone prefers the U.S. first. Our opportunity here is greater. I don't care what my friends up in Canada say. Our opportunity here is much more competitive and much larger. It just is. Yeah. And in terms of competitive too, like in Canada, it's a uh, metric, like you, you get your residency all based on merit, not a lottery, right. which in the a U.S. based system. Yeah. It's a point-based system. In the U.S., the most qualified person is not guaranteed to get it. Whether in Canada, if you hit those points, like if you have a master's and, and a STEM major, I think you pretty much hit the points, right? Like uh, not, an not necessarily. Canada, That's where the GTS comes into play. So if you actually work, go into Canada under a temporary visa, the GTS global talent stream, and you're working in Canada as a full-time employee, if you have a job working in Canada and then you go through the points-based, what, what they call their express entry, it actually does give you a much higher probability. They also have a lot of weighting, not only on degree, Daniel, but age. Age is a huge factor in the points-based system. Perfect. Um, and then, Imam, official graduation date is July 4, 2022. When should he file for his OPT? 60 days in advance. Yeah. And then. And, and the reason why I say that is it could probably take longer than 60 days for you to get your card in hand. It also gives you time as you're nearing graduation to begin aggressively looking for an opportunity, utilizing um, the tools and working the program that they have here at Mastering College to Career to get you in front of the right individuals that you need to, that understand your situation and that are willing to consider sponsorship for you. Yeah. You need as much time as possible. We were actually talking about this earlier, Daniel, where you're saying, Hey, what, what's my guess on how long it takes? And my question was, what's your skill set, right? Because if you're a data scientist or a machine learning engineer 
or a software engineer, your probability and your time is much less than an aeronautical engineer or a mechanical engineer. It just is how it is. Yeah, no, it makes sense. All right, Robert, want to be, again, I know um, I want to be super respectful of your time and everybody's time. So let's get the last question that we have about the summer internship. Uh, yep. And then from there, we'll just wrap it up. And, and, then we, and then if you, and then we can go from there. So this question is, if I get a summer internship, how many days in advance should I apply for CPT? Uh, you can do that pretty much a couple days in advance. You want to work with your DSO, but there's a, a form. Um, I believe it's the I, I-20. Um, I believe that's the form, the I-20. And your DSO will fill out that form. And once that's signed off on by your DSO, designated school official, then you would have your CPT work authorization. So literally, you could meet with your DSO tomorrow and begin working on Friday. Perfect. Excellent. So everybody, thank you so much for, for coming. If you have any further questions, you can feel free to send them to me on, on, on LinkedIn or if you're a part of the program already on Slack. Also, I would encourage you to follow Robert on all the platforms, including the YouTube channel. I think that's my favorite platform he has where he has live Q&A. And you can continue to ask him questions. As you, I hope you guys have found this as valuable as I did. Uh, Robert, again, thank you so much uh, for doing this and, and for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, Daniel, I hope we can make this a, a regular and consistent thing. Um, again, if I can help any of you in any way, please you know, make sure to reference Daniel if you reach out. Um, I want to make sure that I do take the opportunity, if you're not currently involved in Daniel's program, um, with mastering college to career. Um, I've seen it firsthand and talked to multiple individuals firsthand um, that Daniel's had the opportunity to work with and help land their dream jobs. So my best advice to you is that if you're considering this, there is a huge opportunity for you to get the help that you need and the guidance that you need and have someone like Daniel hold you accountable. Because that's the biggest thing that, that I find is that you don't know where to start and Daniel can help you start. And that's one of the things why um, my partnership with Mastering College Career makes so much sense because you are the next wave of H-1B visa employees working here in the U.S. And I want to make sure that you understand the good, the bad and the ugly of it, right? You're here to pursue an opportunity. I understand the talent and skills gap that's happening here in this country. And I want to make sure that whatever we can do, whether it's Daniel or myself, we point you in the right direction and you can make an informed decision that works best for you. You have been listening to How to Get an H-1B Job International STEM Student Edition. We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. If you use Apple Podcast, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating of the show. And if you're listening through Spotify, Give us a quick follow to ensure you never miss an episode. And we will catch you guys next week.